Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You're listening to Crime World, so I know you're interested in stories about criminals. But what about the cowboys? I think they're pretty fascinating too. So I wanted to let you know that my Sunday World colleague, Eddie Rowley, is this week launching his new podcast, My Country Life. Eddie will be talking with some of the biggest stars of the Irish scene, including Daniel O'Donnell and Nathan Carter, about their lives and careers in the wild world of country music. Check out My Country Life with Eddie Rowley wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, Los Angeles is sort of a destination for a lot of people who are unhoused. Both sides of the sidewalk are lined with tents and lined with people. It definitely changes people's activities who live directly near it. It's like, okay, how do you take into consideration the human rights of the unhoused and think about what is safe for their neighbors? There's such a lack of acknowledging of other people's humanity at the core of this. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It's known as the city of dreams, where models, actors, and artists seek fame and fortune in the shadow of the Hollywood Hills. But alongside the glitter and glamour of the California dream is a very different Los Angeles. One with a sprawling homeless population which has fast become the biggest social issue in America's richest state. Today, I'm talking with LA local Glenna Gordon, a photographer whose work has appeared in the New York Times and more recently, an emergency medicine technician with the City Ambulance Service. She tells me about vast homeless encampments at well-known areas like Venice Beach, Skid Row and Eagle Rock. About her work on the front line of emergency healthcare, which is often a sticking plaster for chronic addicts and the mentally ill. And about the failings of housing supply and planning in a city fast serving as a warning to us all. This is Crime World a podcast from sundayworld.com.
Reading figures about the amount of homeless people living in LA County, 64,000. Like, can you explain how big is LA County and are you seeing homeless people absolutely everywhere or are they kind of concentrated into, into particular zones? Uh, 64,000 is, is a mini city in and of itself. I actually don't yeah. know the total population of Los Angeles offhand. Um, it is very large. Uh, you know, I lived in New York for many years. New York is so small and compact. Los Angeles is not like that. Um, but 64,000 people is a lot of people. Uh, it is rare that you would drive for, let's say, more than like, 10 minutes and not see an encampment of some size. So they're not everywhere, everywhere, but you know, um, definitely on different corners. You see people walking on the street. You, um, under a lot of freeway underpasses, there are encampments. You know, there's a little protection from the weather under a freeway overpass. So you definitely see encampments under a lot of those. Um, there are particular areas where it is worse. You know, we've talked about Skid Row a little bit, and I'm sure we'll go into that. Skid Row is pretty bad. Um, and then there's also a pretty big encampment in Venice. And then in certain areas, and then like small pockets, other places. There was a really big one in Echo Park. It got broken down by the police and people dispersed. And then they sort of reformed new encampments elsewhere. There's an encampment by the LA River that's very sizable. So they're definitely known areas. And then generally like, yeah, you're not going to see one every time you walk out your door, but you're not going to drive for more than 10 minutes without seeing one. Yeah, it's incredible. And like when you say you lived in New York, like the last time I was, well, actually, every time I'm in New York, I kind of get a bit of a shock about the amount of people, you know, with mental health issues living on the streets. And, and OK, we have it here in Dublin, too, and across Ireland, but it is quite stark when you walk into it. So you're sort of uh, L.A. is that multiplied. Oh, by. man. Yes, L.A. is definitely like people from New York come to L.A. and they're like, wow. Or, you know, I've had friends who live in L.A. One of my good friends spent like a month in Mexico during COVID in like a small town, San Miguel de Allende. And she got back and she's lived in L.A. for like 20 years. And she got back and she's like, this is insane. Like it is everywhere because there are so many places where this is just not the case. Um, Ireland, other places, uh, and it is it is much worse than New York. Per capita, I'm not sure how different it is. Again, I don't know the numbers in like New York versus LA. New York, the difference is that most people have, um, there's a lot of shelter beds. So the population that is sleeping on the street is much smaller than the population that's sleeping on the street in Los Angeles. The ratio of shelter beds to people is the key differential there between New York and LA. Mm. Now you kind of um in your in your previous job came face to face with it because you were working as a photographer and you did a a really interesting piece which I had read in the New York Times and that was centered on Venice Beach which to me is always reminds me of the doors during my <laughs> yeah. age here they were had some album cover it was always a very funky bohemian place it looked like to go but um your photographs were just shocking the glass uh, panels between the people buying their $10 lattes and the homeless people living in tents all along the beach. I mean, it looked as if it had been overtaken. The encampments along Venice Beach uh, swell and then get broken down and then it's empty for a while and then they like spurt back up. 
and that cycle continues right now. Uh, at certain points, it has been v- like a very sizable encampment, especially during COVID. Um, they stopped breaking up the encampments as much as they had been. And then um, I'd say probably like around March of 2021, the LA Sheriff's Department said, we are going to break up these encampments. Like people are not safe on Venice Beach. And um, they started a really big campaign to get everybody off Venice Beach. That ended probably in like July or August. And at that point, there were no tents on the beach. And then now if you go back, there are definitely some again. So it's just, it's like a cat and mouse kind of game. The police break it up. People leave as soon as the sort of attention moves away, they come back. And the problem, of course, Lena, is that they're leaving with nowhere to go. So the the overall, the swelling problem is just growing and growing and growing since the seventies. Well, some the the when they displace people from the encampments, they will often offer them hotel rooms, but they'll do something like offer somebody in Venice Beach a hotel room in Chatsworth, which is like north central Los Angeles, more than 45 minutes in a car, probably like two and a half hours on public transportation. So if you are living on Venice Beach and you have a couple of friends you live near, you guys sort of do mutual aid, you support each other, share resources, and suddenly one of you is at a hotel in Chatsworth, one's at a hotel in Inglewood, that's not going to work long term. And if you don't have resources out there, that can't be a place where you stay. So they will offer people temporary housing, but one of the issues is that that housing is just not sustainable and it doesn't necessarily align with people's needs. A lot of times also there'll be rules like you can't bring pets, you can't stay, you can't cohabit with someone of the opposite sex, which you know is a rule that they'll make that's uh, related to like domestic violence and abuse, but also means that like couples can't stay together. And so if you are a couple and you are put in these hotel rooms and you're not together, like that's not going to work either. You're not going to stay. So you might go there for a while, take some hot showers, like wait till the police sort of look the other way. And then you just go back to Venice Beach. Mm, mm. You know, similar, similar problems within the homeless situation here. Exactly that, that there's rules maybe in the hostels. The hostels can be more dangerous than sleeping on the streets. Yeah. I hear people say that. Um, they feel they can get, they're going to get robbed in the hostels. They don't have the same security on the streets. Obviously, it's much colder here, <laughs> as you can imagine. Yeah. You know, I think Venice Beach, if, if, um, you know, if you were going to be homeless, I suppose under the sunshine in LA would be better than the freezing cold temperatures here sometimes. I mean, Los Angeles is sort of a destination for a lot of people who are unhoused for that reason. And that being said, I do want to say like by the beach, it is cold and windy. And so there's homeless people who live in sort of like different areas. And the people who live like right on the beach are usually like younger, a little hardier, a little more um, seeking that beach bohemian vibe that you're talking about with the Doors album. And then you'll have um, people who are like, families or who are newly homeless, they wouldn't necessarily go to the beach. They would go to sort of a different area to camp. Um, Mm. But yes, the weather is a huge part of why so many unhoused people end up in Los Angeles. Like if you, like when I was working on that story and I was walking around and talking with people and, you know, it was not uncommon for me to talk to somebody who was from, I remember one guy was from Delaware, um, people from Oregon, people from all over do end up in Los Angeles. It's the weather 
together and it's also the laws. Um, there are other places that have much tougher um, laws that enforce rules like around camping. You know, you hear about cities where the police are like knocking on doors of RVs at in the middle of the night to tell people that they can't park there, which is, you know, an anti-homeless measure. And, um, you know, the laws in Los Angeles are not great, but they are better than some places for the unhoused to be able to continue camping. Mm. Now, Skid Row, um, I think people, homeless people were pushed in there from the 1970s on by bad planning. They didn't want, they wanted them out of the business districts that was growing. Um, 1980s, they, you know, policed it largely with enforcement, clearing, sanitizing the streets and did the same in the 1990s. These single occupancy hotels were closed at the same time. Property prices were going up. Um, And here we come to the last 10, 20 years, and it has exploded, Skid Row. And I think probably your current occupation maybe has has given you a better insight maybe into what's going on within these populations. Just different, different insights, different insights. I also live downtown, so I like live pretty close to Skid Row. Actually, it was funny. I had a friend who was staying with me recently who was visiting from New York, and she wanted to go to another neighborhood and she didn't have a car. She was like, oh, I'll just walk. And I was like, oh, you cannot walk. <laughs> like, it's, like, it looks like a 20, 30 minute walk. And I'm like, don't walk. Don't walk there. You cannot do that walk. Like, you, I mean, it's, you can, but it's just, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. You know, it's a lot even when I drive through it. Um, it's uh, a couple of blocks. It's like a couple square blocks. I wouldn't be able to tell you how big it is overall. Um, there's definitely like a couple of corridors where it's very dense, like around 6th and 7th Street. And um, like it's technically like the fashion district in downtown. Uh, when you drive through, like both sides of the sidewalk are lined with tents and lined with people. And driving can feel a little bit like an obstacle course because like people walk into the middle of the street. I was I was driving last night and it was night and I was like, and there was just, I don't, like, it's a nightmare to hit somebody with your car. Like, I don't, I don't want to do that. And yeah. people are darting out and um, it could happen pretty easily. So it definitely changes people's activities who live directly near it. Um, I was like, oh, I have to remember not to drive this way at night. Like, I just don't, like, that's the last thing I would want to happen is to accidentally hit somebody. So, and is it kind of scary? Are you afraid you're going to be robbed? Are you going to be carjacked? Are they are they kind of functioning to that level? The people living there are they largely addicted? And I'm not I'm not particularly afraid of being like robbed or carjacked. Uh, it's not it's not. I mean, like I know there's a lot of cities where that is like a very real threat. Like I think about like people who live in South Africa who um, have de- drive defensively in a totally different way than I would. Uh, yeah, there's not. I can't think. I don't know about any carjackings um, specifically. I mean, look if you look on these apps like Citizen or Next Door and you look at crime reports, like it's pretty terrifying. Um, you know, I I choose not to look. <laughs> I mean, yeah, things happen, but for the most part, people are minding their own business. Um, I would say the crime within those communities is much worse than crime uh, towards people who are just passing through. Uh, that being said, like, you wouldn't really want to walk there at night. Like, I was telling my friend, like, yeah, it looks like a 20-minute walk, but just not super wise. So there are a lot of like a lot of people with mental health um, challenges and who like need so many more services than are available to them. And without those services, like 
they are, they, they can, you know, they don't have an outlet. They don't have a way to necessarily take care of themselves or provide for their own needs or somebody to help them navigate the world. So they're just out there and it, it can be quite dangerous for, for them and for people around them. Now, there's nearly about 3,000 people they count at some times living on Skid Row in that small area. So this is seriously like a, I mean, it is probably, you mentioned South Africa, it's probably something like you'd see in South Africa or you'd expect to see in South Africa. It's, it's, it's a tent city. It is a tent city lining the sidewalks of, I don't know, like four by four, six by six city blocks. Uh, it's a lot, you know, and there's definitely places where like, you're like, wow, this is in front of like a really nice luxury apartment building. A lot of it is in front of like more industrial buildings, like warehouses and construction sites. And that's part of why it is where it is. It's less directly in front of like super fancy real estate, but it does exist. And you know, like uh, another friend who lives uh, pretty close to me downtown lives in like an old loft building and he has this like amazing view of the skyline of downtown. And then if you look right down, there's just a row of tents on his block. And you know, like I would love to have a view like his, but I also, you know, I have a small dog who I walk at night. I get, I work strange hours. Like I wouldn't necessarily feel safe living there, nor would I like choose to have that intensity of interaction on a day to day basis. Like he was telling me like, yeah, you think about whether you want to just step out for a cup of coffee. Yeah. And I'm sure also you think about, um, you know, it's very stark realization of the haves and have nots in a way, if you literally have to step over people on your doorstep every day as you walk into your private dwelling, um, you know, okay, we get used to everything, but that that in itself is hard. There's obviously been a consistent failure for people with these mental health issues um, from government and uh, whatever else. You're working in the medical environment now yourself. And how is the ambulance service coping? Are you picking up a lot of people with these issues? Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, One of the things that uh, I am like most often encountering in terms of encountering the homeless are uh, people get placed on holds called 5150s, which is where they are a danger to themselves or a danger to others. So that means if like somebody is like walking into traffic or like harming themselves or harming others, but they like haven't necessarily committed a crime, um, the police will put them on a 5150 hold where they are uh, restrained and usually what happens is first they'll go to an ER, um, an emergency room for medical clearance to say like that, you know, they don't have any, that they don't have COVID, that they don't have any other sort of like major medical problems. And then once they're medically cleared, they will be transferred to a psych hospital or a psych ward. And the holds will last 72 hours. And then at the end of the 72 hours, uh, whoever is in charge can either release them or hold them for longer. Um, I definitely pick up a lot of people on these holds and, you know, we take them from point A to point B and I drop them off at some of these places and I'm just like, this is not a place where anybody gets better. (laughs) And Mm. that feels really hard. Um, It feels really hard to be like, I'm taking you to somewhere that is just like, absolutely not going to improve anything that's happening in your life. Um, There are a couple of like better places like 
for taking someone to like Los Encinas Psych Hospital. I'm like, oh, okay, they, like maybe, maybe something yeah, good will come yeah. of this. But like for, I'd say the vast majority of places where we take people, I'm just like, I just, I, it's- it sounds like a conveyor belt. It's a conveyor belt. And I also want to like be very clear. I am not a mental health practitioner. I do not have a background mm. in mental health. I do not have- the capability to like speak to mental health tra- treatment. So I'm only speaking from my own perspective of what I'm seeing and, you know, what I know as like a human being that I feel like if I were put in a windowless room with no furniture and not much interaction, like that wouldn't be good for me. That'd make it worse. <laughs> so, um, I mean, there's certainly people who are so much of a danger to themselves that that is what they need. Um, but there's a lot of gray area there. And what about, I mean, clearly the the issues with the mental health and homelessness go hand in hand with addiction. So um, there must be an enormous drug problem. What are the, what are the drugs at play there um, within the community? Yeah, a lot of people that uh, we're picking up are, are either were high or are coming down from being high. Um, you know, a lot of meth. A lot of meth, it's cheap. Uh, every now and then you'll be like, oh, like the talk screen will come back and it's like cocaine and meth and alcohol and weed. And you know, like you're like, oh, you can afford some cocaine. Like you got a little more money there. <laughs> uh, but a lot, yeah, it, it'll be like a pretty wide range of drugs. Definitely a lot of meth. Uh, and you can sort of tell when somebody is tweaking and they have like a certain energy to them and you can tell sort of like when they're coming off of it too. And then, you know, sometimes like when we're picking them up, if I'm picking somebody up to transfer them from an emergency room to a psych hospital, usually they're coming down by that point. And so sometimes they will have been given, you know, Ativan or another sedative and then they're just going to like sleep the whole time. And um, I'm not interacting with them very much. We're just sort of like getting them from point A to point B. What's amazing is that like sometimes they will give people all these sedatives and they are like still riled up, drugs or not. Um, it's actually pretty amazing to me to see to see people fight sedatives. Uh, and I, again, I am not a mental health practitioner. I'm not a doctor. I like my medical skills are like I can do CPR and give people aspirin. <laughs> so uh, you know. Um, I, I don't want to say too much more that would sound medical. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, you you can see, I suppose, more 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 importantly, you can see the hopelessness nearly of the, their lives and that homeless situation. And you know, they're getting maybe respite for a short period, for a longer period, but they're still going back to the problem and to all their problems that are still going to be there. And I suppose we should all look to L.A. and how big this problem has grown there, because nobody can sit back and and say, oh, you know, we're grand. I mean, the homeless problem in this country is growing all the time. Um, There's massive addiction problems, all those things. And we talk constantly about a failure and failure of governments when it comes to housing and addressing these issues. so what what do the people of LA like your it's your hometown now you know what what you know what do you feel about it and is is it a case of you kind of everybody's just getting on with life in a way we're all working and and getting on or is there is there anybody really shouting for this problem to be tackled Oh there's a lot of shouting there's a lot a lot of shouting and uh you know the piece that you were talking about it was um in the New York Times magazine and uh the writer who who 
uh, I worked with for that is really excellent. I can't recommend it strongly enough. Um, I think it's called something like Los Angeles Goes to War with Itself. And so she wrote about the arguments that are happening in the communities that the housed communities that are living near the unhoused. And there's a wide variety of reactions. There's um, a huge number of people who are, you know, what sort of a a term that is used as like an anti-homeless activist. Like they are against homelessness. They do not want homeless people near their houses. They want them gone. They're not necessarily looking for solutions that are, in the best interest of the unhoused, they want the unhoused outside of their front yard. And so you'll have these people who, um, they'll go to city board meetings, they'll they'll do these like little things that make the lives of the unhoused really difficult. Um, there's a guy in Venice who single-handedly advocated for all of these, um, <laughs> I think we called it uh, aggressive landscaping, something like that. These basically um, planter boxes filled with cactuses and other succulents that are in the middle of the sidewalk that prevent people from camping. And so on the one hand... I saw your pictures of those. Yeah, I mean, that is obnoxious beyond belief. Also on the one hand, someone's like, oh, I, I want to put up a planter box with natural California, you know succulents um, for the beautification of my neighborhood. And it sounds really nice, but then if you look at it, it's actually this like deeply anti-homeless initiative. And look, it's it's difficult to live near encampments. Everywhere I've lived in Los Angeles, I have lived near an encampment and it impacts your life on a day-to-day basis. Um, so I really, I think I feel torn about this like, I think if I were going somewhere else and I were just like, wow, this guy is like doing everything he can to make the lives of the homeless worse. Like, I, it would just be so cookie cutter, like, what a jerk, like that. He's in the wrong. He's against human rights. And, um, like, yes. And it's hard to live near these encampments. Mm. Uh, so. And people have invested, I suppose, in their homes and they are, you know, concerned about the values of them. The values of the houses just seem. Crazy. There's I mean, the, yes, there's values of houses. There's also like personal safety. Like uh, I remember talking with this one family that lived in Venice, and you know, like they lived right across from at the time was like this big encampment on Penmar Avenue near this golf course, and like you know there were homeless people like pooping on their yard in their yard, and they had like small children, and they were like you know on you know, sometimes on drugs, sometimes, you know, screaming at each other in the middle of the night. There were, you know, people cook in their tents and rig electricity and then there are fires. Um, Like it is a safety concern too. It's not just property value, though there are certainly a lot of people who are mainly looking at it from a property value lens. And it's like, okay, how do you take into consideration the human rights of the unhoused and what is best for the unhoused population and think about what is safe for their neighbors and and it's it's really hard to find a middle space. So like you have these anti-homeless advocates, and then you have um, there are groups that are like pro-homeless that are who are like believe in the rights of camping. Like didn't want places like Echo Park broken up. And I would actually say both both sides are equally strident and like unseeing of the other side in a way mm. that to me feels really short-sighted. So. Now, Echo Park was was a big, big um, campsite. Was it similar in size to Skid Row? Or le- uh, 
no. So Skid Row is like sort of like blocks and blocks and blocks where it's just like rows of mm-hmm. tents. Echo Park is um, in a neighborhood and sort of like uh, East LA, I guess Central LA. Um, there's a lake. It's a really lovely lake. The city spent a bunch of money recently fixing it up and uh, huge grassy patches around the lake and at one end of the lake. And people started camping there and then more and more tents popped up. And then it was, it was basically like a little tent city. And a lot of people thought it was actually like a pretty great place because it was actually pretty organized. There were um, like community meetings, like, like, community watches all within these unhoused this unhoused group of tents um you know a lot of mutual aid it was pretty organized it was not just like like skid row is rougher like there's more people with more mental health issues and more drug issues in echo park there was like a degree of solidarity a degree of community organizing that people actually really thought would a lot of the unhoused advocates thought was like a very good example of cooperation and how the how an encampment can support itself. Um, that being said, there are like people who live in Echo Park who uh, like feel really unsafe and mm-hmm. you know like maybe don't want to manage this every single day in and day out. And the city had invested in this park and making it a, like a tourist destination. And, and, um, you know, there's like little swan boats that go around on the lake. And so, so it was like this kind of crazy contrast where there's like these people taking these, like, I actually don't know how much they cost, like 10, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, like swan boat rides and, uh, like near like one of the bigger homeless encampments in the country. And so eventually the police did break it up. There were some, like there were a couple of days of warning. And then what they'll do is the police will work with this organization, LASA, which is LA's housing support agency. And so LASA social workers will go around and try and offer people placements. But like, again, like if you live in Echo Park and you're with a couple of friends and they're going to send you to, you know, a hotel somewhere on the other side of town where you have no resources and maybe you can't take your pet, you can't stay with your partner, like it's not that great of an option for you. Um, also, a lot of these hotels have like very strict curfews, like very strict rules in general, and it's just not going to work. It wouldn't work for me, so I can't really expect it to work for somebody who's unhoused. Um, and so the LASA guys would go around and offer these placements, and they try and get people to leave voluntarily, but it is not easy, and like most people don't really want to leave, partially because they're not being offered something meaningful. And so then eventually the police did come in and break it all up over the course of, I'd say, like probably two or three nights in uh, March of 2021. Like the rest of us, it seems that the homeless community want to live in nice places, don't yeah, they? Yeah, right. <laughs> like near, nice near facilities. Why are with we their friends <laughs> and neighbors and with their, with their own belongings and with like a sense of personal yeah. autonomy. So... Um, and finally, Glenna, this might be a silly question, right? It probably is, but sure, look, I'm used to making a fool of myself, so why not? Um, I see nationally in the US, there's about, there's more than half a million, 600,000 or something homeless people, right? And a quarter of them live in California. So California does have, you know, it's not really fair, is it, on California? So is there any question of ever that the other states recognizing that and maybe California getting some national funding or some national help to try and solve this? Or is it just suck it up? Well, oof, that's a good question. And 
again, I'm just going to always forefront my own limitations. Like I'm not a policy expert. <laughs> I am not a budget expert. Um, I will say California is a giant economy. I think if it were its own country, it would be the eighth largest economy in the world. So, um, and it can well afford to sort the problem itself. In other words, <laughs> afford, I mean, afford is a question of political will. Right. Like there's mm-hmm. there's money for what people want there to be money for um, in terms of like federal assistance. I know that especially during covid, there was like a lot of FEMA. FEMA is the Department of Emergencies in the U.S. A lot of FEMA support during covid um, for a lot of things. Um, you know, Governor Gavin Newsom has come under a lot of fire again from both sides. Like it's sort of, I feel for the politicians because it's like, it's a lose-lose proposition for them. You know, they're never going to do enough for the people who are concerned about property values and safety. And they're also never going to do enough for the people who are um, focused only on the rights of the unhoused. And it's really, it's such a divisive issue. I I didn't feel this as much as a photographer, but like uh, when Jamie's story came out, she received a huge amount of backlash from both sides, from both sides. Like nobody was happy with her story. And that's because it did talk about the weaknesses of both approaches and, you know, was fair in doing so, which means that she made everybody unhappy. Um, But, you know, so there's, there's not a lot of solutions in terms of like a national solution. I don't see that coming, especially when our country is so divided right now. And California is seen as nationally as such like a liberal enclave full of sanctuary cities and hippies who just, you know, want their kids to watch homeless people shooting up. I, I mean, that's, you know, a terrible exaggeration, but also not totally untrue of what people in other states might think of California. Um, given the scale of the problem in California, it is surprising that there isn't more of an investment towards a solution. Um, you know, it's really expensive. It's expensive to create new housing. Part of the issue, part of why this issue is so bad is the housing shortage in general. Um, this housing shortage in California is very severe. And so creating new affordable housing for the homeless is extremely expensive. And again, there's money for what people want there to be money for. So it's as much as it is expensive, it's also an issue of political will. Um, it's hard for people to get behind the idea of creating, um, you know, little houses or affordable housing units um, in mass, not just for the homeless, but there's so many people who are living paycheck to paycheck. I, I remember reading a statistics that said, if you, to make, to, to be able to have a one room apartment, apartment in San Francisco and support two people, um, you need to make something like $90,000 a year minimum. And like, that's ridiculous. That's not most people. And that's just for a one bedroom apartment. That's not even talking about if you're like living in a multi-generational family. So our housing crisis is extreme. And as long as this continues, there will be more and more people who are filtering out of a housing system and onto the streets. You know, there are there are definitely people on Skid Row who have mental health issues and mental health challenges that have gone on for most of their life or been made worse by trauma or by drug use or a combination of all of those things. And then there's people in, who are in homeless encampments in LA who, you know, six months ago might have had an apartment and a job. And, you know, one thing goes wrong. And if you don't have a safety net or a cushion of savings, like you're on the street pretty quickly. 
Um, so I do think it's also really important to talk about the different types of people who end up homeless and the different reasons they end up homeless. Like, yes, there are kids from Oregon who hitchhike down to California because they want to live on the beach and they want to live outside of the norms of society. And there are people who just can't pay rent. Mm, mm. And it seems to me that we started by saying it, it kind of, uh, it began in the 1970s. That's 50 years ago now. They say sometimes, you know, it takes the same amount of time to untangle the problem. So, yeah. Honestly, this is why... I'll be dead and gone, I can tell you. (laughs) This is why I'm not a politician or a policy maker because I have no idea how you solve this problem. I really like... I can tell you all the things I know that don't work just from firsthand experience, but I, I don't know where the solution is. I do think no, but there's such a lack of acknowledging of other people's humanity at the core of this that I hope that changes and that creates political will for more of a change. Uh, America has sort of never been more divided, more fractured. People have never been more disconnected and unkind. And, you know, unkind is sort of shorthand for something that is like a much bigger idea about respecting the humanity and rights of all people. Mm. Well, Glenna Gordon, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. And I am going to tweet, I'm going to tweet that story. So as everyone can look at your photographs (laughs) and um, remember, that was the old job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sometimes it feels really different and sometimes it feels totally the same. (laughs) It's kind of wild. I can just imagine. Anyway, thank you so much for Thanks, having Lena. me. I appreciate being here. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.